Hey there and welcome wherever you're joining us from today. My name's Jonathan, one of the pastors at Red Door Church, and we are in the second week of a series that we're, where we're focusing in on who God is, particularly in the midst of the crisis that we find ourselves in at the moment. Last week, we looked at the fact that God is with us, and today we're looking at the fact that God is for us. And if you have a Bible, I'd love you to open it up to Romans chapter 8. That's where we'll be spending most of our time today. It says, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, because of you we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything created will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we work our way through this series, looking at who God is in the midst of this crisis, our focus is going to be drawn over and over again to his sovereignty and his goodness. And one of the reasons I love this passage is because it brings together those two things, God's power and his love, his sovereignty and his goodness. And it's really important that we see those things coming together in the very nature of God, because if God is sovereign but not good, then he's heartless. But if he's good and not sovereign, then he's helpless. But where we see him coming together in sovereignty and goodness, we see him as he is, as he truly is. That is God's nature. That is the essence of who he is. God can no more stop being sovereign or good than he can stop being God himself. And so this passage is a beautiful picture. It paints a beautiful picture of God in his sovereignty and his goodness. And it's the kind of passage that we can rest on in the midst of turbulent times. So we're going to take it just a line or two at a time. I encourage you to have your Bible open or switched on. Uh, as we work through this passage together. So let me go back and read verse 1. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? What are we to say about these things? The, the, these things he's referring to there is 
all that he has said up until this point in the book of Romans, right? The previous eight chapters worth of glorious gospel proclamation. It's as if the book of Romans is this mountain, right? This theological, literary, beautiful gospel mountain. And Paul in Romans 8 reaches the summit of this mountain and he's looking out, surveying all that's gone before. And he says, what are we to say about these things? His answer is, if God is for us, who is against us? Now, before we get into the the powerful truth of that statement and the fact that it is true and the fact that, you know, God is working all things for, for our good, even in the midst of crisis and the fact that we're more than conquerors and nothing can separate us from his love. Before we get to all of that beautiful truth, we just need to acknowledge that there is an if there. If God is for us. And for some of us, if not all of us, to varying degrees, during this time of crisis, we have had cause to think, well, yeah, is God for us? I mean, that's a legitimate if in that statement. Some of us have suffered directly because of coronavirus. Perhaps we have loved ones or relatives who have been directly impacted by it. Perhaps they've contracted it. Perhaps they've even died as a result of it. All of us have been affected in some way, even if it's just through social isolation, which we've all experienced in very negative ways, even the most introverted among us. Some of us are going through stuff right now that makes coronavirus look like a walk in the park. Right? And so all of these circumstances can cause us to really legitimately ask If God is with us, if God is for us, I mean, is he? Paul's answer to that legitimate question, is God really for us? His answer is in the very next verse, verse 32. Let's read it. He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Paul's answer to that legitimate question, is God really for me? Paul's answer is to show us a picture of Jesus on the cross. Paul says, look back to the cross for the proof you need that God is actually for us. He who did not spare his own son, like God did not even withhold from us the most precious jewel in the universe, namely his son, but gave him up willingly for us all. So if that is true, if God won't even withhold that precious gift, then how can we doubt for even a second that he's not for us? This is the prime means we can use to overcome the lies of Satan that tempt us to believe that God is not for us. Remember, that was the first lie of Satan in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. The first lie was to to, to introduce into Adam and Eve's consciousness the idea that God is withholding something for you. That is, that God is not for you. 
He's not all in. Maybe God's holding it out. And that same lie has echoed through time. That same lie is one he employs in our day-to-day experience, particularly when we're going through suffering or times of crisis. He will introduce that lie into our consciousness and he will cause us to question, is God really for us? Is God actually holding something back from us? And Paul's answer to that question is a resounding, right, heel-crushing-the-serpent's-head answer which is to say God didn't even withhold his own son how can we think for a second that he's withholding anything good from us one of Jesus best friends the apostle John said something similar in 1 John 4 9 God's love was revealed among us in this way God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Now, I can imagine one response to that line of reasoning being, well, yeah, that, that's, that's fine. I can believe that God gave his own son for me back then, right? But that happened back, that's 2,000 years ago. What about now? How can I be sure that God is for me now in the midst of this season of suffering that I'm going through? Paul says in the first part of verse 33, Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Who can bring an accusation against me? Well, to be honest, lots of people. Like a whole bunch of people could accuse me very legitimately. I mean, Satan, he is the accuser. That's what the Bible calls him. He's like, that's, that's his whole job. That's his thing. He's accusing me all the time. And then there are all the people who have ever known me, right? They have a legitimate reason to accuse me of a whole bunch of things. Just ask my wife. And then, right, even more probably than Satan or the people around me, I have myself to accuse me. I. I feel like I'm my greatest critic. If you want a list of reasons why God should reject me, I've got a bunch. Like I've got millions and I've got hundreds of new ones every day. So who can bring an accusation against God's elect, right? Even if I am chosen of God, well, I can. And so can you. And so can Satan and demons. And like this cumulative case against me is a really strong one. But let's let him finish the verse. He says, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. So Paul's answer to the question of whether someone can accuse and therefore condemn me or you as one of God's children, his answer is to point us, yes, back to the cross. He's going to take us back there. Not just to the cross, but to the resurrection. But he's also going to draw a line from that to the present, the ongoing present. This is how he does it. He says, who can bring, uh, let's go back to the start, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. 
Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. Okay, so we're going back. We're going back to the declaration of justification, right? That declaration, that kind of law court declaration, Jonathan Smith is justified, made right with God, declared not guilty because Jesus died and was raised. So that truth is established because of what he did on the cross and subsequently in the empty tomb 2,000 years ago. That is settled. But what about now? He covers that too. He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Now, this is an area of of gospel theology that probably a lot of us aren't very familiar with. Because when we think about justification, when we think about me having my sins forgiven, being declared righteous before God, not guilty, our minds naturally go back to the cross and the resurrection. But there's another part to this. There is a present day application of this, which is what he refers to here as Jesus interceding for us. Now, this is huge. I wonder what you think about when you try and picture Jesus right now. If I say, get in your mind a mental picture of Jesus Christ, where does your mind go? Now, it might go to his earthly ministry, right? Healing the sick, casting out demons, performing miracles, teaching. It might go there. It might probably, if you're you know, part, of, part of the kind of um, uh, tribe that is naturally gravitating towards our kind of church, you probably think of Jesus on the cross, dying for sin or perhaps being raised to new life right and and that's sort of at the center of our understanding of the gospel but what if i ask what is jesus doing right now and then i think for many of us our minds will go a little bit blank or or perhaps we'll rely on our imagination and think well what's heaven like maybe i'm seeing a hammock and a cold drink and the sun shining in the sky and sitting by a river just chilling you know jesus he did his work and now you know he's chilling that's what heaven is it's you know enter my rest actually the beautiful truth of the gospel is the complete gospel that paul offers here in romans 8 is that yes jesus died yes jesus was raised but now he is actively working for our justification through intercession now intercession is the present application of what jesus won for us on the cross so it is jesus applying justification which happened that back then applying justification to the present day it's think about it like this it is jesus hitting constantly hitting refresh on my justification So that every day as I struggle through this present life of frustration and growing, groaning and sin and brokenness, all throughout, Jesus on my behalf is hitting refresh on justification. He's standing in the gap for me and pleading my case. He is interceding for me. There's another beautiful place where this is described and it's in Hebrews 
chapter 7, let me read verse 25. Therefore, he, Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. Can you see that? The reason that I'm able to be saved completely, not just in the past tense, not just when I put my hand up and said, I want to receive Jesus, or not just when I said that prayer, but completely, is because Jesus lives completely, that he always lives, he lives eternally to make intercession for me. He is applying his once-off work of justification constantly to me so that I might be saved. So the love of Jesus is present and constant. The active love of Jesus for me which found its greatest expression in his death and resurrection, is not just past tense, but present tense for me now, constantly, and will remain so long as he remains. That's his ministry of intercession for me. But the question still keeps raising its head. Even if Jesus' love was expressed then and continues now, is there anything that can split me away from that love? If his love is constant, right, just a constantly pouring waterfall, is there anything that can drag me away from the waterfall of his constant efficacious love? I mean, we have significant enemies in this life, right? There are forces that are powerful, that might be powerful enough to sever us from the waterfall of his grace. We have enemies of Satan and sin and death and and sickness and darkness and brokenness and all of these things are powerful forces. Let's not underestimate them. Are they powerful enough to sever me from receiving God's love in Jesus? That's the question. Paul knows this. Paul knows that this is a legit question. He doesn't try and hide it. His own experience is one of constant suffering in this life. He knows the depths of the power of suffering to shift us from the reception of God's love. And he acknowledges it in verse 35 and 36. This is what he says. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, because of you, We are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. This is the reality of Paul's experience and the experience of most of the Christians in the early church and the experience of many, 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 if not the majority of Christians today. Some level of persecution. These are not theoretical things that he's talking about here. 
distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. This is real life. This is Christian life. He doesn't try and hide that reality away. He says, in quoting the Psalms, we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered, right? Our life as Christians, we're like lambs to the slaughter. He doesn't want to deny that reality. He accepts it and he has lived it. But his answer to the question of whether those things can separate us from God being for us is in verse 37. He says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How is it that even in the midst of all of these things and through all of these things, persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword and coronavirus and cancer, right? In the midst of all of these things and through all of these things, he says we're more than conquerors. How? We can be confident that we are more than conquerors through all of these sufferings and strains, the kind of darkness and brokenness that characterizes this present life, this present frustration, we can be confident that we conquer through these things because God is sovereignly working all of these things for our good. And he says as much, as you know, in the 28th verse of this chapter, this is what he says. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. That's how we can conquer even in the midst of these present sufferings because God is sovereignly weaving them all together for our good. So then, can anything come between me and the sovereign good purposes of God? Paul's answer, verse 38 and 39. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The reason that Paul is so confident that my sin, my current stumbling, faltering, pathetic excuse for a Christian life, and the circumstances I find myself in, persecution or suffering or coronavirus or unemployment or divorce or whatever, he's so confident those things won't separate me from God's love because he knows that God's love is not dependent on either my performance or the suffering that I'm going through. Those things won't determine whether God will continue to love me God determines whether God continues to love me and he has determined in eternity past that he will never, ever stop loving me. That's why Paul is so confident. 
because the responsibility for holding me in the love of God from now to eternity future rests in the strong arms of God and not in the pathetic, fragile, weak arms of either me or you or our circumstances. One of the things that we love to do as a family is jump in the car and drive down to Williamstown Beach. We love the beach there because it is uh, nice and shallow for the kids and you can walk out for a long way before you get into any surf. And so we love going down there and just paddling around and mucking around with the kids. And um, one of the things I've noticed is that when my boy Judah, who's six years old now and a pretty good swimmer but still not super confident in the waves when I'm walking with him into the water we'll be walking along side by side for the first you know 50 meters and then when the water starts reaching up to his waist he will grab for my hand and hold on and then as we walk further and further and we start coming up against waves and against the surf and as the water gets closer and closer to his neck he grabs on tighter and tighter and eventually he will just grab and cling on to my entire body right now the reason that i'm confident that he won't be swept out from me and out to sea never to be seen again doesn't rest in my confidence in his ability to hang on as tight as he can that is great and I love the feeling of him holding on and I'm sure he's, he's doing it with all of his might. But my confidence that there is no way known that he will ever be separated from me and swept out to sea. My confidence is in my own ability to grab a hold of him and never let go. At some point in our walk out into the surf, there will come a time where the waves get strong enough and heavy enough and big enough that he will have to let go. He's just not able to cling that strongly. But I know that my power is sufficient to, to hold him and never let him go. So it is with us. Yes, fellow brother and sister, by all means, and with all your strength, cling to God and to the love of Jesus during these times of crisis. But know this, your ultimate security through famine and nakedness and sword and suffering and sickness and Satan and death, through accusations from without and accusations from within, through all of these things, the reason we can know Chapter 8, verse 1, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ is because he himself has determined to save us and to hold us and that nothing can separate us. Praise God for his grace. Praise God for his sovereign and good rule. We can know in the midst of all of these things, irrespective of where you are this morning, irrespective of how much you might be doubting the goodness or, or the greatness of God, irrespective of all of these things, and in fact, encapsulating all of those things, is this truth, that nothing can separate us from God's love, 
that God is for us. I want you to take a moment now, just as I prepare to say a word of blessing over us. I want you to take a moment just to put yourself into this beautiful passage that we've been reading. To read it for yourself and to ask the question, if God is for Jonathan, who can be against me? If God is for blank, who can be against you? The answer is no one. The answer is nothing. Praise God for his grace. I'm going to send us out with a word from Jude, this great word of exhortation and benediction. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, To the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.